The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. One of the great heart cries in our lives, and I know in mine for sure, one of the great heart cries that regularly comes out of my heart is for restored relationships with people. Any of you in a situation where there's a bit of a stretch or a little bit of a, maybe even a break in the, the joy of a personal relationship with someone else? Uh, you see, damaged relationships are so painful. Would you agree with that? Just really painful. And sometimes it's just minimal damage, sometimes it's moderate, and sometimes it's really major. But it doesn't matter what it is, it's painful. The relationship we enjoyed is in trouble. And I've found over life that one of the greatest hindrances to closeness in any relationship is the guilt that I start feeling when I have transgressed something in that relationship. The other person may not even feel it like I do. I, I feel it worse than they do often. And it's because I, I understand in that relationship there's some rules, there's some agreements, some verbal, some kind of understood, right? And, and then I uh, transgress one of those. Violate one. I don't keep it. And I start feeling it. Now, I understood that really well in the home I grew up in. It was a wonderful, godly home. And there were rules and expectations. There was a way we were supposed to live. Uh, this, is a, this is a truth in the Christian life too. There's an oughtness, how we ought to live, right? Sometimes there's real rules and sometimes God says you ought to live like this. It doesn't matter. Either way, we have this understanding. And I had it in my home. And, and when I would break one of those rules or when I wouldn't live the way I ought to live and, and I tried to hide that behavior, I can tell you my relationship with my dad was always strained, even before he realized it, because it was strained for me. I knew I had violated. And uh, if he found out that I had done it and I had not confessed it to him, it was worse. Anybody understand what I'm talking about, right? It not only hurt our relationship, it often hurt me in really profound physical ways. Um, what I realized was what solved the burden of my guilt and restored the broken fellowship. Now, you hear, not the relationship. That was solid. I was always going to be my dad's son. But the fellowship that we enjoyed, the wonderful atmosphere of working together, living together, what would change that, what would solve that was when I confessed my sin. When I showed up, manned up, and said, this is what I did. And my dad always forgave me. We'd have that conversation and fellowship was restored. And I thank God that this is a wonderful picture. You know, human relationships do picture relationship we have with the Heavenly Father. And this example, although it's small and it has all kinds of problems to it, when you compare it to our relationship with the Father, it is the same with our Heavenly Father. There are some rules. There are some expectations. And enjoy the relationship with your heavenly father. You need to keep them. You need to be following in them. And when we don't, fellowship is broken. Not relationship, but fellowship is hurt. Now in this psalm, 
we hear David tell the result of doing just that. The story comes out of David, the king of Israel. You understand the king in the Old Testament was to represent God on earth. He had a high and holy calling. And here's this man after God's own heart, the Bible says, who is now, he has now deteriorated into a terrible state. We're gonna read it in just a minute. How did he get there? Well, the problem was on an occasion, he, because of his power as king or because he just lusted, saw this woman, her name was Bathsheba, and he invited her into his uh, private chambers, had a relationship with her. The end result was she became pregnant. And when he found that out, he had to solve the problem, right? Now, what would have been a good solution? Class, what would have been a good solution? Go to God and confess, right? Not him. No, no, I'm gonna solve this in my own strength. So the solution was get rid of the husband, right? And make it look like, I'm married to her, and it's our baby. So he tells General Joab, send your eye up there, and when the battle's tough, get away, let him get killed, which happened. But you know what? In, in a palace, there are no secrets. You know that? No secrets. And, and people in the palace saw what was going on. They knew. And the word's getting around, and they're saying like, we got problems. And David, of course, is deteriorating and things are bad. And finally, God said, enough, enough. If you're not gonna confess it voluntarily, I'm gonna send a prophet to you. He's gonna point the finger. Nathan was the name. And he said, David, you're the guy. You're the guy. I don't know how many of you have ever had the experience of having a boil. Anybody? A boil. I had when I was a teenager. It came right here on my arm, right by my elbow. I don't know where it came from, but I'm telling you, it got worse and worse and worse. It got to the place my arm was just fiery hot, couldn't bend my elbow. And I finally said, you know, back in those days, who went to doctors, right? I finally said to my mother, I'm gonna solve that. I got myself a sharp knife, put it in a fire, made it, and I lanced it. And the awful smelling stuff that came out of there was just oozed out. But you know what I felt? Tell me what I felt. Instant relief. Pain was gone, just like that. I lanced the boil. And that's what David's saying here. You get to that place where your life gets so in a mess because you aren't confessing, you aren't dealing with the sin in your life, you better get to the place where you lance the boil and get some relief. And out of this experience that David had, he wrote Psalm 51. Any of you read that? That was in your reading this week, right? Psalm 51. And in that Psalm, David promised to teach sinners. Can we all say, I am a sinner? Now, many of us are redeemed sinners, praise God, right? But we're still sinners, right? He said, I'm gonna teach sinners, people that still have trouble living according to God's rules and regulations. I'm gonna teach them God's ways. And Psalm 32 is that teaching. You get the idea? So Psalm 31, he's express, uh, 51 expressing, but Psalm 32, he's actually teaching us what he promised to teach. It's one of seven penitential psalms where people are repenting. It's called a masculine. It's an important teaching psalm. So the question we ask today and we want to answer is, what did David teach the people of God then? And what is he teaching us as the people of God today? And you know, what's wonderful is it's the same message. So we don't have to worry about two messages this morning. What David teaches, King David clearly states from his own experience of living with unconfessed sin. Now in his case, it was a year. Some of us, it's only one day. 
But if you keep hiding and not confessing sin, if it's one day, it's bad enough, two days worse, right? A year, it's terrible. But if we do not confess sin, it's destructive to every part of our life. Nothing is unaffected. Everything is affected. And that the place of pure joy and close fellowship with God is living in a state of confessing sin and embracing God's forgiveness. And you have to do both. One is an activity of your heart. One is a by faith acceptance of God's truth. So let's take a look at that this morning from this psalm. Someone has said, forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. I think that's right. So in this psalm, I find three steps. This is your sermon notes, if you want to turn there. I find three steps to finding joy after living with unconfessed sin. And then I find, very quickly at the end, three steps to kind of preventative maintenance so you don't go down that road, okay? So the first, three steps in finding joy after living with unconfessed sin. And the first step is in verses one and two. Let me read them. The step is, I must call sin by name. It's a radical offense against the holy God. Look what David says in verse one and two of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In the Old Testament, writers actually used 15 different words to describe sin. Here David uses four of them, and every one of these words is so appropriate for what he had done. Every one fits. For instance, he calls it transgression in verse one. That's willful disobedience. That's rebellion. That's doing what is prohibited. That's just going right against the rules. Well, he stole someone's wife. And he uh, put someone to death. Those were two of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't do that. He did it. That's transgression. Then he calls it sin. The idea of the word sin here is missing the mark. It's a defect. It's coming short. This is like, and he would understand this word because he was a warrior, right? Shot bows and arrows and spears and all that. And if you're practicing, you aim at a target. Now, this was not just missing the bullseye. This was missing the whole target. You get the idea? This was a major defect. This was not close to hitting what God wants you to hit. Uh, then he calls it in verse two, iniquity. This is perverseness. This is twistedness. This is moral distortion. Every decision he made in this story fit that category. And the last he calls it deceit or guile. This is fraud. This is promising something you can't give. This is saying something you don't mean. This is insanity. This is duplicity. Well, stealing, covering up the attempts, commanding Joseph, uh, Job to, you know, kind of kill off the guy without letting anybody know, all of that. Now, what I want to say to you is what David is saying, if you want relief from this terrible pain of a relationship that's greatly strained because of unconfessed sin, the first step is you have to tell God what the sin is. You got to name it. Most of us are really good at kind of hiding, you know, well, I, I just didn't write God, I'm sorry, I kind of messed up. God's saying, how did you mess up? What was it you did? He wants you to tell him. Now, do you think he knows? Of course he knows. That's a, it's not a question of God didn't know. It's a question he wants you to be honest. I did X. 
and it was wrong. And, and so as you're sitting here this morning, I know God's gonna start talking to all of us. He's talking to me as I prepared this this week. Am I willing to say, this is my failure and name it? I am full of pride. I'm a willful, crazy guy. I do things that I shouldn't do. I hurt that person by what I said. Like, am I willing to say those things? David says, you gotta call sin by name. And all of them are a, a radical offense against the holy God. We sang about that this morning. Second step, I must calculate the cost of unconfessed sin. I gotta be manning up here. It is a burden of guilt. It's like that boil building up. What did David say in verse three and four? For when I kept silent, in other words, I didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's interesting, the scriptures indicate here and in other places that when we live, try to live with unconfessed sin, it impacts us physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. The whole thing is a mess. We think it's just a little part of our life. It impacts everything. And notice what David said, how it impacted him. He lost his strength. He said, my bones are wasting away. My strength is drying up. Here's this man who could fight giants. He could take on armies all by himself. Remember that? This rugged warrior out there in the wilderness with 400 rebels hiding from, right? And now he's lying in his bed as if he has no strength and his bones are drying up. That's what unconfessed sin will do to you, friends. If that's not bad enough, he lost his sweet song. David is called the sweet singer of Israel. He played the harp beautifully. He sang, apparently. He could actually dispel depression in Saul's life through his music. And now what does he say? All day long, I'm lying around groaning. Does groaning sound like singing? Huh? We came this morning to groan, right? That'd be an awful experience, wouldn't it? There's something really different about groaning and roaring and constantly lamenting from actually singing. So here he is. He's a mess. And what David said basically in that text is, I experienced this high price tag on sin because, what does he say? Day and night. Verse 4. Your hand was heavy upon me. Ever felt the heavy hand of God in your life? This is not the hand of blessing. And the longer he waited, the heavier God's hand rested on his life. It's like he's being pressed down into a total mess. There's only one solution, confess. But he's not gonna do it. Any of us like that? God's warning us, he's talking to us. No way, Jose. I'm not as bad as person X. Now I wanna tell you, very personally, some things that I have found affect me when I don't confess sin, okay? And they'll come up on the screen. The first is my fellowship with God. When I do not confess sin, my fellowship with God is affected. The closeness, the intimacy, I know and feel that something's not right and I kind of know what it is and I am not enjoying my life. Second thing is my worship of God. I can't sing freely and honestly. The words of many songs, as I look at them, they convict me. Maybe some this morning convicted you as you sang them. In the good times and the bad, I'll follow you. And you're saying, I'm not even following them. How could you sing that? 
Did you feel conviction in your heart? Sometimes it's more than conviction, it's condemnation. And so what do I do? I don't go to the worship service or I stand there and pretend like it's not going on. I don't engage in it. I don't want to say those words. I don't want God to know my heart and my devotion to God is impacted. I don't want to spend time with him. My prayer life is miserable. I go through the motions of reading scripture and praying and I miss days and finally give it up. Who needs this? Then my service for God is often impacted because the joy's gone and so Serving God is routine, it's, it's unfulfilling. I start making excuses for not showing up when I'm expected. And then I, I want to feel good, so I start criticizing others who do seem to be enjoying that they're serving. A lot of that happens in churches. When you get criticized, don't take it personally. The problem's probably the person's having a tough time with God. Then my evangelism. How can you tell others about the wonderful joy and peace you get from knowing Jesus? And you're a mess. So you stop telling people. I don't tell people. I've been delivered from sin. Oh my goodness, and I'm living in unconfessed sin. So you stop. Uh, this is really serious, and this is what David mentions there. My personal health is deeply impacted. Sometimes it's depression. Often it's losing weight. Sometimes it's losing sleep. And you know you do those things over a period of time, you become a mess physically. You get woken up in the middle of the night and what are you thinking? You gotta go to the bathroom, but what's going through your mind is that unconfessed sin. Yeah, don't drink coffee right before you go to bed. It might help you with unconfessed sin, right? You all know what I'm talking about. I'm telling you myself. And then of course it really isn't the horizontal, the, the vertical relationship's terrible, but then it affects the horizontal relationships with others, my family, my friends, my church family. I am out of whack. I don't want to be around them. I start criticizing them. I start treating them wrongly. I, I'm just telling you, number two, it affects every part of your life. God's hand is heavy upon you. Step number three, I must confess my sin to God and claim his forgiveness. These are two different steps. These are two actions. These are two keys to restoring that happy heart and that freed spirit I once enjoyed. The first is I confess to the Lord. That's what he says, verse nine or five and six. Or, and verse five, excuse me. I acknowledge my sin to you. See, that's confessing, right? I did not cover my iniquity. So I will confess all those are the same statements. I'm going to tell God the truth. And you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. See, that's the second part, claiming the forgiveness that God promises. And you have to do both. The first is a choice I make. It's an act of my will. I say, I, I, I've been trying to hide the sin. It's not working out. Remember, God says you can't hide from my, I, I know everything that's going on. So I finally get that place to say, I will do what I need to do. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. Now, when you actually make that choice, friends, you understand it starts off in your mind, your emotions get involved, and then you act. Do you agree with that? So my mind finally gets straightened out enough to say, if I go down this road, it's going to get worse. See, that's intellectually figuring it out. And then I start, I start emoting. I start, yeah, this is really bad. I'm feeling terrible. So it gets to the place where you actually engage your will. I will do something about this. And one of the things I want to point out here, where does he say he's going to confess to? Going to confess to his friends? Confess to a priest? Who's it say he's going to confess to? What does it say in the text? The Lord, right? And I, I found this in my life so many times. When I get into that mess, the first thing I want to do is go tell a friend. Because you know what the friend's going to say? Ah, it's not that bad. I've done worse things than that. 
right? That's not too bad. You'll get over it, right? That's what friends do, right? They don't want to tell you the truth. Hey, like you're a mess, get this right. Most often they want to make you feel good because they want to retain the friendship. That's why you go to God first and then you tell your friends. You get that? Get it right with God, then tell your friends. So the first is I confess to the Lord and the second is I claim from the Lord, right? I claim from the Lord, his promise is true. If I confess, you're gonna forgive. God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand on that. I know a lot of Christians really get struggling with that. They, they, they confess and then they think God doesn't do what he promises. Uh, how could God really do that? Did he really do it? But I want to tell you the cause, what will bring back to you a happy heart and a freed spirit is when we do what God says and believe that what he says is true. He says you're forgiven. And I, I didn't put this in the notes. You might want to write them down. I, there are three little things God promises if you will accept his promise, okay? The first he promises is my sin is forgiven, okay? So when I confess and claim his forgiveness, I have this assurance, my sin is forgiven. It's taken up, it's carried away. That's the idea, the burden is lifted. Illustration in the Old Testament, you know, when the people came with their sin, the priest would put his hand on the head of what they called the scapegoat. He confessed all the sins of the people as he put his hand on that goat, and then he would send the goat away into the wilderness. You see, the sins were carried away, gone. You get the idea? Listen to what some other scriptures say in Isaiah 44, 22. Prophet Isaiah says, when you confess your sin and you claim this, they're blotted out. The transgressions are blotted out as with a thick cloud. Any of you like flying? I like flying. I always ask for a window seat. You know why? Because I want to look out the window and see what's down on the ground. Not because I'm afraid I'm going to crash. I just like to see. And it always bugs me half to death when I get up there and then the clouds are there. Can't see, Right? The thick clouds blot out my ability to see the ground. That's the way it is when you actually claim the promise of God. There's like a thick cloud. God can't see it. Isaiah 7, 19. They're buried in the depths of the deepest sea. That's where God puts your sins. And an old pastor, mind you, saying he puts up a sign, no fishing. I like that, right? They're gone, they're buried, no fishing. But you know what most of us do? We kind of think that and then we go fishing, right? Well, I really wonder, oh my goodness. Could God really do that? Psalm 103, one of my favorite Psalms in the Bible. Verse 12, he removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. You can't measure that. You just go around circles. You'll never get east, never get west. That's how far they're gone. And I love Hebrews 10, 17. God says this, your sins and iniquities, I will remember against you no more. This is what happens when we confess and claim the promise they're forgiven. They're covered. They're looked after. Bruce Larson tells the story, apparently a true story, of a Catholic priest in the Philippines who carried, he was a really beloved priest, people loved him, but for many years he carried around a secret burden. It was a long, long past history sin, buried deep in his heart, he committed that sin many years before when he was seminary. No one else knew it but him. He'd repented of it again and again, but somehow he couldn't really believe God had forgiven. And he suffered this remorse for years, still had no peace, no inner joy, no sense of God's forgiveness. Finally, one day, there was a woman in his parish that claimed 
that she had visions from God where God spoke to him, to her, excuse me. Uh, she deeply loved God. She had this deep spiritual life. And when she had these visions, Christ and her would have this conversation. Priest was a little skeptical, like probably most of us would be. And so he thought he'd test out her claim. So he said to her, next time you have a vision, next time that happens, and you're talking to Christ, I want you to ask him, ask him what the sin was that I committed years ago in seminary. So she went off. She said she'd do it. A few days later, she's back in the, in the church, and he says to her, have you had any interaction with God since we last met? Did you talk to Jesus? Yeah, Christ and I had a good conversation. Did you ask him the question that I asked you to ask? Oh, yes, I did. Well, what did Christ say? And this is what Christ said. She said, he said, I don't remember. I don't remember. Can you believe that? That a holy God who you've offended or are offending right today, if you'll confess and claim his forgiveness, he says, I don't remember. Which leads me to my second thing. The reason he can forget is because the sin is covered. It's removed from God's sight. That's what it says in the text. In the Old Testament, you remember they created this beautiful ark of the covenant. It was in the Holy of Holies, first of the tabernacle, then the temple. And in that little golden three by three, a little building they built, little box, you all know what one thing was in there. It was the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments represented all the things God said the people were supposed to do or not do. And once a year, the priest would take blood from a spotless lamb and go in there very carefully, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat that covered that box. And that protected the sins that were in the people's lives because they transgressed the Ten Commandments from God judging them. You get the idea? They were covered. All those sins were covered. New Testament, we don't have to do that because Jesus says his blood covers our sin, amen? So they're forgotten because he can cover them and because he can choose not to count them against me. That's number three. He doesn't, he doesn't keep a record of these wrongs. He forgets them. It's like I had this bankrupt account with God and he just said, it's clean. Looks good to me, in fact, What's really exciting is the New Testament says he imputes his righteousness to us. We have a full bank account of the righteousness of a holy God. Sins are gone. Wonderful verse, wonderful verse in the Bibles. 1 John 1, 9, it's on the screen. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the, that is not a one-time event, friends. The idea there in the tense or present, if we keep on confessing our sin, he is faithful to keep on forgiving our sin. This is the ongoing reality of the human life. And if we do that, there's restored joy. And God can do this because of Calvary. Christ paid it all. I love that old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sim left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. The hymn writer 
that wrote, it is well with my soul. The second verse says this, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. What does he say? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Do you have a happy heart this morning or are you living with unconfessed sin? That's the question. And it's no wonder David, when he actually understood this, he starts off this psalm like a beatitude. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the person. You want to get into that state of absolute blessedness with God, experiencing the deep joy and the freed heart. Confess your sin. If you don't, it'll destroy all that. So three steps. Now there's three steps to maintaining joy after finding forgiveness. You see, it's one thing to deal with what is. It's another thing to take preventative action, right? My oldest brother, Ernie, who's now with the Lord, went to University of Waterloo, got a degree in electrical engineering, and in his work plant, work times, he uh, worked for DuPont in Kingston. Never forget one of the first times he came home after a, a work term, I said, Ernie, what did you do? And he said, I did preventative maintenance. I said, well, what is that? I'd never heard of the term. He said, we would take perfectly operating equipment out of the line and rework it and make sure it was really in tip-top shape and put back in. I said, well, why would you waste all the money? Because we never wanted the line to break down. Do you follow what I'm saying? You take preventative maintenance. It's like when you take your car in and get the oil changed, Right? if you do it the way you're supposed to, right? That's preventative maintenance. It keeps what is running well, running well, right? You get the idea? That's what David says, and this is very quick. There's three steps to preventing the bad thing from happening, right? To keeping in that good state with God, to keep me walking in the joy of forgiveness. And I need to practice these things every day of my life, sometimes multiple times in my life. First step is run to God early in the temptation process. Look what David says, verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, what does it say? At a time when you may be found. You see, you get in that state when you're unconfessed sin, you don't think you can even find God. So when it's still good, your relationship is still good, run to God. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Get to God early. Run to him. He's the place of safety from all the trouble. He preserves us from that. When I'm overtaken by temptation or when I actually fall into sin, run to God immediately. Don't force God to bring his heavy hand upon you. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Right? Before the flood, the great flood of tribulation and judgment comes that David speaks about. Run early. Second step, I must respond to God's guidance with humble obedience, verse eight and nine. And we're not sure if David wrote this on his own or whether this is God speaking here and David's just recording. But either way, it's a good instruction. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Friends, you know that when you get into trouble, when, you, when you're being tempted, you're going down this road and you, you haven't made the decision to sin yet, but you're thinking about it, right? And all of us know that, right? 
When you're overtaken in a fault, there's a process, there's a period in there. And at that time, if we're thinking, if we're looking to God, he will guide us in what we should do. The problem is we stop looking to God. We start looking around, making human judgments. And that's the idea here. He wants to guide us with his eye. The way he does that is when we're looking up. Remember I talked about that last April when I was here? The wonderful guidance of God's eye. And it's when I'm looking to him, then he can guide me. And you know what he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians? He says there's always a way to escape, right? Always a way. What you're facing is not uncommon to people. Everybody has experienced this. But he'll provide. So when I'm looking to him, he's guiding me. And he's saying, Marv, don't go down that road any farther. You're in big trouble if you do. I think this is the way you ought to go. Ever felt that? You understand what I'm saying? We sometimes call it our conscience, right? It's the voice of God. You know who's living inside you? The Holy Spirit. He's talking to you at that moment. Are you listening? He wants to guide you. He says, don't be like a horse that you have to jerk around with a bit. I uh, spent a number of summers working on a Mennonite farm. We had a team of Clydesdales. Wonderful horses. Incredibly strong. And even with a bit in their mouth, sometimes you could not control them. They had a mind of their own. Here I am, a young teenage guy thinking I'm strong and trying to make those horses go my direction. No way. And see, that's the way we get with God, right? He wants us to gently be guided, but sometimes it's like he's trying his very best to guide us and we aren't willing to follow, right? So there's stages, Take the gentle guidance by looking to God. If you don't do that, the next step is he's going to be jerking you. Some of you have been jerked by God. Some pretty hard things. And you still go on your way. God wants to deal with us gently, not harshly. He hates doing that to his children. Sometimes he has to. And the step three is, I must reject the way of sorrow and embrace the steadfast love of the Lord. You see, this goes right back to Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1 that Pastor Todd talked about, talked about wisdom? There are two ways to live life, right? What is the one way? Foolish, ungodly, right? The other way is wise and godly. Everybody got that? That's what Psalm 1 was all about. You want to be like a tree planted by the river's water? You got to be godly. You got to be wise. Here, David says, Reject the way of sorrow. See, that's the way of foolishness. That's the way of ungodliness. Reject that. Turn to the way of godliness and wisdom. Because the way of wisdom is this. Confess your sin early and claim God's forgiveness. Amen? That's the way of wisdom. I get on to this quickly. And the result, he says there, wonderful. Many are the sores of the wicked, verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You want to feel God's love in your life? You want to be surrounded by God's steadfast love? Get on this quickly. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all the upright in heart. I'm telling you, you want to have a heart that just jumps with praise. Shouts for joy. Confess your sin early and claim God's forgiveness. Stories told in Spain of a father and a teenage son who, who, you know, had a typical strained relationship and it got really bad and the boy finally ran away from home. And this father loved his son, 
So he began to search for his rebellious son, looked all over the country, couldn't find him, finally in desperation in Madrid. This is his last effort to find his son. The father put a notice in the newspaper. Now I know that's, that's a century ago, right? Who reads the newspaper today? But he put an ad in the newspaper. Maybe today we'd do it on social media. And this is what the ad said. Dear Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me in front of City Hall at noon. I love you. Next day at noon in front of City Hall, there were 800 Pacos showed up. All of them seeking forgiveness, wanting a restored relationship with their loving father. There's probably some Pacos in this congregation this morning. You long for that? There's only one way. Confess, show up, be honest. The question is, are you actually willing to seek God's love today? The Father loves you absolutely unconditionally and he wants that relationship restored. He wants you to experience the joy that you once had. But you have to confess and claim his forgiveness. So what's God saying to you right now, friends? What is he saying to you? Is he reminding you of some area of unconfessing in your life? Something rattling around your brain is saying, oh yeah, like I've been kind of messing around with that. I've been playing around with pornography. I've been playing around, tempted to steal something. I, I don't know what your temptation is. Don't know where you are. But I ask you, are you going to put into practice what King David said in Psalm 32? Or are you going to keep on doing what you've been doing? And you're going to leave today without that joy and that freed spirit God wants to give you. And what's really interesting is today we have a wonderful opportunity to kind of look this decision right in the face because we're going to have communion right now. And you see, this, this is what it means. When we take these elements, we are celebrating the means by which God has provided for us the removal of guilt that comes from sinning and not confessing. And that means, which we sang about this morning so beautifully, is the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. What Jesus did for us is what provides the way for us to have this guilt removed. And, he, and God's provided this very simple but profound way of remembering that, of dealing with the issue of sin in our lives. This is something we should be doing daily, regularly, but there's something very special about doing it in community, about celebrating this good news with our friends, right? the family of God. And so that's why, we that's why we gather at this communion table. We celebrate our freedom from sin. We celebrate the fact that all of us are sinners and we confess it to the Lord. Some of us can do it early. Some of us, it's getting pretty painful. But either way, we can confess it and claim God's forgiveness. And we do that together. We eat and drink together. There's a little, there's two cups that you get. One has a little piece of bread and one has some, grape juice. And, and these are spiritual foods to us. I understand we think of representing Christ's body and Christ's blood, but listen, friends, there is something spiritual about this exercise. And I think this is it. It forces us to look God in the face and say, where am I in this journey? Where am I? So 
Christ has done all you need. He sacrificed everything so you could have what he promises, a life of joy and freedom. And here at Jesus' table, he invites every person who's a Christ follower, whether you're still in sin, like you may still be fussing around with God. That hasn't broken your relationship with him. It's just messing up your fellowship with him. And he says to you, if you're a follower, come to the table, come to the table, partake. Come to the table, partake. We come with humility. We come with confession in our heart. In a minute, I'm going to pray. It'll be a prayer of confession, a prayer of thanksgiving. And after I pray, the worship team's going to lead us in singing this song. Just listen to the words. Unbelievable. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. So while we're singing, you can get up from where you are. Just come down these aisles, go to these, there'll be people standing there and then go around the outside to come back. You might want to sit in your seat for a bit and just get things right with God. You may want to go get the elements and then come back to your seat and sit there and think about it and confess that thing that you know is in your life. Either way, partake with a heart that's been freed because you've confessed. And be sure you thank him as you do for forgiving your sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful today you made a way possible. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we'd be hopeless. We'd be in worse shape than King David. But thank you that you made a way. You've done your part. Now it's time for us to do our part. Our part is to come before you with great humility, great honesty, and confess. That's why you instituted this remembrance, is to force us to look at the cross and realize it's only at the cross that sins are carried away. The burden is lifted. So Lord, help us to come honestly, openly, helpless except for the help you give. With a heart of thanksgiving, claiming forgiveness based on your truth, your word. Help us to experience that deep joy again in our lives because we've done what David said. We've confessed our sin and claimed your promise. Speak to us in this hour, this moment. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.